to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore that you have received and heard, obey it and repent. If, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I say, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that, you can, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those who I love, 
I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, let's pray before we think about this passage from Revelation with some interesting images in it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time now to think about your word. We pray that you'd help us to understand something of what's communicated here this morning. And we pray that you'd help us to grow as Christians as a result of hearing these things and being uh, the faithful people that you want us to be. We pray for your help in that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've been watching a couple of the events in the Olympics over the last few days, uh, just as I've also been doing as well. I was fascinated recently to watch the swimmers do a 10-kilometre swimming marathon. Uh, I don't know how many of you here also saw that event. Anyone see the, the swimming marathon? Good, there's a bit of feedback. That's good to see. Uh, one of the things that struck me was how well the, um, the swimmers kept up such a, a high intensity of pace, even a kilometre out from the end of the race. And even when they got to the finish line, they were able to bang the, the finish line uh, spot. And uh, they had plenty in the tank. They were, they were still going hard even 10 kilometres later. Some of them were doing it in times that were uh, under two hours. And I was uh, doing a few mental calculations as well, thinking about how fast I ran the city to surf in just under an hour. But that was 14 kilometres and I was running. These guys were swimming and uh, they did it under two hours, uh, 10 kilometres. It was impressive stuff. And I thought about it, how I'd go uh, in a 10 kilometre race. Who thinks I'd be able to swim a 10k marathon uh, and sort of get there pretty easily? Yeah, I, I sort of pictured a situation where there might be a, a boat uh, going down in the ocean and shore was 10 kilometres away and I thought, hmm, I wonder with a bit of mind over matter whether I'd be able to even get out those 10 kilometres. I was sitting there having a chat with Joanne about, you know, whether I'd be able to make it. I don't think I would. I think even uh, if I was to swim a kilometre, I'd be pretty grateful to see the end, end come to that. Uh, even when I get up and down the pool, 50 metres, 100 metres, I feel like I've achieved something. But 10 kilometres, I don't think even with mind over matter, I would probably make that if I was to do it tomorrow. And it raised a question for me, what would it take to get to the end of an event like that? A big swimming marathon. How did those people persevere? Well, of course, we know that they did some training to do it, uh, but then you've still got to perform on the day. Well, that's really the topic that we're going to be looking at today, not so much marathon swimming, but the topic of perseverance. Uh, certainly, sport has some value. The Bible tells us physical training is of some value, but training in godliness holds promise for all things, both this life and the life to come. Uh, and this morning, we're looking at this topic of perseverance in Revelation. Perseverance in the Christian life. As we look at the churches in chapter 3 of Revelation, we see what kind of form they're in. Uh, we're confronted with the different stages of their perseverance. And 
we look at what it's going to take to get them to the end of the race. Now, while it's important to look at these things and learn from their lessons, the reality is the critical thing for us, though, is that this is not simply about learning from someone else's mistakes or even from what they do well, but the challenge before us is to learn so that we can persevere, so that we can be the ones who stand the test of time. Well, let's look first at the church in Sardis. There is a couple of problems with it, isn't there? Uh, firstly, they have this appearance of being alive, but they're practically dead. I'll pick it up in verse 1 to 3. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. It's hard to know exactly what their deeds were that gave them a reputation for being alive. Uh, it's difficult to know whether they had a good lot of community connection, that they were well in touch with people, but whether they had no real gospel edge to that connection. Did they have members of their congregation who had high-profile officers who, who were in good standing in the community? People like maybe... Tom Cruise to give their kind of uh, church a bit of a, a good reputation. Although I'm not so sure uh, whether Tom Cruise is doing the Church of Scientology as much good these days since it seems a difficult situation is happening in his life with a third marriage on the rocks. So whether he's an asset or a liability is a good question. But we don't know for this church whether they had some people in the community. Um, but either way, they looked, they looked good. They promised much. But as far as God was concerned, they weren't alive to him. Perhaps their failure had something to do with idolatry and immorality that can go with it. We're told in verse 4 that some had not soiled their clothes, and presumably many in the church had. Whatever their failures, their church was incomplete in the sight of God. It was on the verge of death, but not all the people there were dropping the ball, as they say. In verse 4 it says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. The church isn't a lost cause. This idea that they're going to be dressed in white, or they are, I think refers to purity and that the fact they will stand before God. There are faithful members in that church who have continued to walk with Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And if you've been to churches throughout your life, apart from this one as well, you'll know that there are faithful people who do remain in the church. They are the ones who are steadfast and they stand the test of time. These people are described as the ones who will overcome, the overcomers who persevere with their faith in Jesus. But overall, the challenge for that church is to recall their good beginnings. They're like an athlete who had a, a good start out of the blocks. We'll have a look at verse 3. It says, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Like the athletes out of the blocks, they had a, a good start, a good beginning, but will they be the ones who finish strong and sort of get to the end, 
or are they going to be like some of the athletes we've seen in different events, stumble on the tracks and go out of the race altogether? Well, if they don't sort themselves out and turn back to God, turn back and change their minds about how they're living and repent, uh, Jesus gives an image of uh, a thief coming when they least expect it. In Matthew's Gospel, we're reminded of a servant who gets to be in charge of the household and we're told that he's blessed if he's faithful, uh, he's done the right thing and fed the other servants at the right time when his master returns. But if he mismanages the household uh, and he butchers the job, when his master returns, he won't be given a pat on the back. He'll be given probably something else, but we're told he will be judged. And this church is being given that kind of news as well. Unless they shape up, Jesus is going to visit them, but it's going to be in a type of judgment, it seems. If they knew we, when he was going to come, they might have got their act together. I know when uh, our house got broken into, it was a rather unfortunate event to wake up and find the push bike out in the front lawn and the garage door open and an iPod missing out of the dock. Uh, I can tell you now, if I knew what time the thief was coming, I reckon I would have called my dad. So <laughs> anyway, moving on to that frivolity. This is a more serious um, picture here. It's uh, not so much Pete's dad that they've got to worry about. That it's, a, it's a case of they're dropping the ball and they're expecting that if they don't sort things out, they're going to lose salvation. It's much more serious than an iPod. Well, like the church in Ephesus uh, looked forward to, well, not so much looked forward to, but expected to lose its lampstand, have its lampstand removed from its place, that's the idea that the church is going to get extinguished. However, this church is still challenged to press on, at least have more people within it who are faithful. And the other churches, including us, are encouraged to hear this warning message as well. In verse 6, we're told, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that includes us. We've got to take hold of these lessons and see that this one's dropping the ball and not to be like it. The question is, are we alive to God? It's all very well, isn't it, for the world to appreciate certain things. They probably appreciate it when Christians started hospitals or when Christians started orphanages or when Christians look out to feed people. The world's grateful for those kinds of things, but are they necessarily characterised by having the gospel as part of those missions? The world might think a church is alive because it's got some community involvement, but if it doesn't have a gospel edge to it, then it's not really alive to God. It's not so much pleasing the world and having it a reputation for being alive that's the important thing, is it? It's about pleasing the Lord and being alive to God, which is the critical thing. I don't think being alive is just about having an emotion where people are bubbly and joyful all the time either, because life's not always like that. There are times when we do get upset, when difficult things happen. It's not just... You know, we walk in together and be here and things are just all dandy. It's, it's not, life's not that simple outside of Eden. But I certainly think the challenge is to keep the important things in the right place. Jesus is Lord and being alive to him, being people who are keen to please the Lord, not the world. That's, that's what alive to God's all about. Well, let's have a look at an example of that now in the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, 7 to 13. We read, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Those words are actually an allusion to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, which speak about kingly authority of the royal household to decide entry into and out of the kingdom. And Jesus is that royal one. He's the one who decides entry into and out of God's kingdom as well. They get a good report in the next few verses. Verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The deeds of this church are known also by the Lord, but they're good deeds. They're something uh, with some integrity about this church. They've got little strength, which might mean they're not necessarily a mega church, which we can probably take some encouragement of that, can't we, folks? You know, This is not a mega church that's being commended here. Uh, they're a church that's kept God's word and they haven't denied the Lord. They seem to have taken a stand for the Lord Jesus. They're, they're not ashamed to be Christians. Uh, and they're holding on to what God's word teaches. They're being faithful. There's an open door before them and some are going to acknowledge that they are loved by the Lord Jesus. And the people that are going to acknowledge that seem to be Jews. It's interesting language. Uh, we're told that they claim to be Jews, but they're liars. There's a sense in which all the promises in the Old Testament look forward to its fulfilment in Jesus. Uh, and the Jews who didn't accept Jesus as their king, well, don't become part of God's people. In verse 9 he says, I'll make those who are a synagogue of Satan, he's their, he's their leader, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Paul talks about a true Jew as one who is a Jew inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Uh, the person who recognises that Jesus was God's Messiah. He comes to his kingdom by means of suffering on the cross and rising again. He was a different kind of Messiah to what the Jews were expecting. Well, that group of Jews, it seems to as opposed this church at Philadelphia. And yet there's a promise here that ultimately they'll see this church is loved by Jesus. And it seems that maybe this Gentile church um, that may have other Christians used in it might be the means by which other Jews become Christians, a mission field which ripens in due course. And we're given a promise to the one who does overcome in verses uh, 10 through to 13. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. There might be an ordeal that's coming where people are tested in their allegiance to see who they will serve and it seems this church is going to be spared that. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes... I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And so there's a hope, uh, a message of hope that's remaining, that as they think about uh, life with God forever, they will be part of that abode. They'll be, it's not so much a temple that's made by uh, you know, structures of material, but it's made up of people. There's other images uh, in the New Testament that talk about how the church is the temple and these people form that. In verse 12 we're told, Never again 
will he leave it? I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. Here's the idea that this heavenly Jerusalem, the dwelling of God and people, is actually going to be coming down to earth. The Bible talks about a renewed heaven and renewed earth, uh, not necessarily uh, floating around on clouds and living in the ether. Um, and it picks up on language that's coming towards the end of Revelation, which talks about uh, the same idea, Jerusalem coming down. I'll read to you from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, which looks forward to the, the end game. Revelation 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so there's an expectation that uh, there's a renewal of creation where the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and people dwell together in God's presence. Well, are we going to be like this church? This church is characterised by patiently enduring. They're people who've held on to God's word, are willing to put it into action, and they haven't denied the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that's saddened me over time is uh, looking, talking to old friends who I used to go to beach mission with when I had more hair. Uh, back in my youth, uh, I did a bit of beach mission down at uh, the south coast. And there were all kinds of teenagers there who were not just you know, looking at going out with each other, but you know, engaging in Christ's mission to take the gospel to the world. And as I chat with some of my friends about how some of those people are going, it's a bit sad to hear that some of them have dropped the ball. They started pretty well. They seemed to be even engaged in the mission of Christ, but they didn't continue. And it's a sorrow to think that um, they aren't persevering as they should. I still say that while there's life, there's hope, and there's room for them to turn back to God, uh, but certainly that's the key is to hold on, isn't it? Like this church that's being spoken about at Philadelphia. Well, let's have now a look at the church at Laodicea, the third one, the final one. It's similar to the church in Ephesus in that it risks losing its place in God's kingdom. We could say that it's a, another work in progress, uh, but like some buildings don't always get finished. This, there's not much progress on this one. In verse 15 he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now historically uh, people have observed that there is a, a few things that Laodicea has going for it in terms of worldly wealth. They were apparently parked on a trade route and they did pretty well out of commerce. Apparently they had some nice black sheep that produced good fine black wool that traded pretty well as well. Uh, but things weren't all great there. They had difficulties with uh, water. They had aqueducts from a place called Hierapolis where uh, hot springs would bubble up. 
And there were all these white crusted bits of solvent on the cliffs there that were sort of showing these hot springs and they aqueducted the water across. But by the time it got to Laodicea, well, to begin with, the water wasn't that great to drink. It might have been good to bath in, but it was lukewarm. It didn't keep its heat. And apparently they could also get water from Colossae, but by the time that was brought over, uh, it had actually warmed up. It wasn't cold to drink. So there's this lukewarm sort of theme happening at Laodicea. Apparently also it was a centre where they had developed some kind of salve for eyes. Uh, eye infections could have done with some kind of medicinal covering. Uh, Joanne was telling me that you can actually use honey in an eye to stop infections and things. I don't know what salve they had. Either way, they've got a couple of things going for them, but there's a few things that they don't. This church has a problem with being not just lukewarm water, but being lukewarm to God himself. They're not what you'd call on fire for the Lord, are they? It's, uh, it's not really the kind of form that they're in. And it's offensive to God. What Jesus tells us, if they remain lukewarm, he'll spit them out, which is code for saying they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's consistent with other parts of the Bible as well. Uh, in John's Gospel, we hear about remaining in the vine, and that if we don't remain in the vine, we'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. Other parts of the Bible talk about if we live in sin and we're unrepentant, we can't deceive ourselves and think that all's okay with God. It's not. The Bible says we need to turn back to God and to live his way, not to live in sin and rebellion. If we live that way, we won't inherit the kingdom. And so there's a message here that we need to have our wits about us. We need to remember that if Jesus is our risen Lord and Saviour, we've got to nail our colours to the mast and be fully convinced of uh, serving him as Lord and Saviour. That's the challenge from God's word to you and to me. And the offer to this particular church, Laodicea, remains open. In verse 19 he says, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. These warnings aren't just given as rhetoric. Uh, this is not just a game. Jesus is saying you need to turn back. And this is love in action, isn't it? The, the opposite of actually um, being loving would be apathy, wouldn't it? It'd be if Jesus didn't say anything. But he loves them. We don't see apathy. We see a challenge for him to call this group of people back to himself. And the fruit of that is very good if they do. We see in verse 20 some words, they're not from Colin Buchanan. They're from the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Verse 21, To him who overcomes... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, I'm reminded of Colin Buchanan when I hear those little words because of his song, If anyone hears my voice and opens up the door. Well, we can all sing it again. We can sing it over morning to you, folks. If, you, if you're a singing kind of a person, feel free. But when my kids ask me what will heaven be like, I like to give them that image and remind them of it. It's like a meal, a good feast, except it's a feast with our Lord Jesus and it's a feast with his people. And that's the fruit of persevering. We look forward to being in a world without sin with him forever.
And yet there's another dimension that's presented here as well that's quite amazing. It's the idea of being co-rulers or co-heirs with Christ. He says, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There's this idea in a mysterious way that somehow we'll rule with Christ or reign with Christ. Well, a summary of the church is a, is a bit bleak, really, isn't it? Uh, two out of the seven churches do pretty well. Smyrna and Philadelphia aren't rebuked. But the others are rather shabby, although there's pockets of them that aren't doing too bad. They still have some faithful people in it. It seems to be the character of the church, uh, the visible church, at least throughout the ages, that it hasn't always been impressive, not always impressive with its faithfulness to God. There's been trouble with sin and idolatry, denying the Lord. But what is shoddy now, uh, at the end of the ages, God's true church, his faithful people, will be seen at the end, and that will be in splendour. Well, what's the challenge for our church? Well, it's not so much, I don't think, in Australia that we're going to experience bloodshed and persecution, that uh, we've somehow got to engage in emperor worship and if we don't, you know, our lives are on the line. That's not really the sort of issue that we're seeing a lot of in the, the Australian context, is it? But I've noticed that uh, holding on to the faith and enduring patiently and keeping God's word and, and not denying the Lord, these are still things which are a challenge for us, aren't they? Our society seems to be increasingly distancing itself from Christian values and atheists seem to be on the front foot trying to tackle Christians. Yet there are good reasons for us to remain with our faith in the Lord, aren't there? I was saddened recently to find out one of uh, my closer friends, after a long time of being Christian, no longer does call himself a Christian. He had an impact on my life. He's a good bloke. But it doesn't seem that he's been able to dig deep enough roots into what God's word tells us about life from God's perspective that he can stand as a Christian any longer. Yet there are, friends, good reasons to believe. The Apostle Paul uh, wasn't always on fire for the Lord like he was. And even the other apostles fell away, including the Apostle Peter. Yet when they encountered the risen Lord Jesus... Their faith was reignited. Paul actually became a Christian and the other apostles started to lead the church, except Judas. Unfortunately, he suicided. But we're given this impression that because Jesus is risen, that makes the difference. If Jesus wasn't risen, you know, we might as well be meeting up for other reasons. But the fact that he is risen makes all the difference. There's a living hope that we have through his resurrection from the dead. So as we see people who perhaps don't continue with their faith, I think we've still got to remember that there, while there's life, there's hope. There is time for them to turn back to God and we can remem remember to remind them of Jesus is risen. We can see that so many lives would change when they encounter that risen Lord that our faith can rest on that as well. Well, let us not be like some of these other churches that are characterised by infidelity, idolatry and denying the Lord. Let us be, uh, even though we're maybe not a mega church, be a faithful church. 
be a church that seeks to be alive to God, uh, seeks to please him, not the world. Let me close with the word uh, from chapter 3, verse 20, the challenge from the Lord. He says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Let us be people who look forward to uh, eating and fellowshipping with the risen Lord Jesus uh, in heaven forever at the end of the ages. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage this morning and this section from Revelation which reminds us about the difficulties and uh, the complicated way the church has struggled and the things that beset it. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that's faithful to you. We ask you'd help us to be people who endure patiently in the knowledge that Jesus is our risen Lord and Saviour and that he promises to come back and take us to be with you if we hold on to faith in him. Lord, we pray for our friends who might have stumbled at this time. We pray that they would remember uh, how the risen Lord Jesus uh, reignited the faith of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles and changed their hearts. And so, Lord, we ask for you to change their hearts as well. And we pray that you'd help us to be people who don't stop in this Christian race or this life, but that we would be people who remain focused on you, who continue to meet up to encourage each other to stand firm as your people. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live lives which are consistent with what we believe. Help us to turn away from sin when we, when we do uh, rebel. But Lord, help us to be people who continue to live with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for this day and for the time that we'll share now over a morning tea. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.